This podcast is a presentation of University of California Television. Like what you hear? Consider making a donation at uctv.tv slash donate so we can continue to bring you more great programs. Today I'm joined by the wonderful and talented Eliza Jimenez Cosio. Um, so thank you so much for coming up to Santa Barbara for thank us. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Yes. So, um... Let's get started with your life pre Our Flag Means Death. Sure. Um, how did you, how did you come to be involved with the show? What were you doing, and how did you end up here? Um, yeah, so <laughs> I've uh, come up through the comedy scene in New York, and um, I came up through New York late night shows. I started at the Daily Show with John Stewart a million years ago um, as like an intern PA, and then um, I ended up leaving the Daily Show sometime after Trevor was on to really focus on writing because um, I only ever saw myself as a performer. I only wanted to be a performer. And in doing that, I became a good writer because I was trying to write more to perform. And so from there, I transitioned out of late night into narrative stuff. um, And I did One Day at a Time. And then after One Day at a Time, one of the writers... um, Bridget Munoz-Lebowitz, who created uh, Gordita Chronicles on HBO Max, had worked with David on People of Earth. And David had asked her if she knew anybody who, who's written a weird script. And <laughs> um, I wrote a Soprano Sex and the City crossover script that got me my, all my jobs, truly. And, um, and so she sent him that, and that's how I got on David's radar. And I'm like forever grateful for that connection. Well, now that you mentioned it, um, could you maybe talk a little bit about that crossover then between Absolutely. Sex and the City and the <laughs> When can we see it? Well, I, yeah, that's a dream. I, I am a little afraid it's my Citizen Kane and that it's <laughs> the best thing I'll ever do. But um, no, writing is regenerative and creativity is always in you. I say to myself all the time and it's true. Um, I kind of just... I'm a huge Sopranos fan. It's like the most important television show for me. And I, of course, just love Sex and the City. And I think I was doing a rewatch of Sex and the City. And they mentioned New Jersey or something. And I was like, oh, yeah, they're like right across the river from the Sopranos. And they aired at the same time. So like crossovers of like the 90s, I feel like growing up, we had like Boy Meets World and like step-by-step crossovers and stuff. Um, if that means anything to anybody. Um, and uh, I just tweeted something like, why was this never a thing? And then I immediately deleted it because I was like, oh, I have to make that a thing. And so then I wrote it and then I put it out on my Twitter and it got like semi-viral and got me attention. So, yeah. Yeah. No, well, I feel like in a lot of ways that kind of sets the stage in a certain way for your work on Our Flag Means Death, that, that kind of ir- almost irreverent mixing of genres or traditions together. And yeah. so I, I wonder, could you maybe talk about, like, as you were writing either the um, fourth episode, the one that we watched uh, today, or other writing for the show, you know, how do you think about, say, genre and traditions, and how do you kind of mix highbrow, lowbrow, or how do you kind of, like, bring these um, dispersed elements together in your writing? Yeah, it's so interesting because it's, like, a question I'm always asking and I'm always finding different answers to and um, I take so much influence from drama series and uh, you know even in in while I was writing this I feel like I was thinking a lot and re-watching a lot of Sopranos episodes a lot of Mad Men and um, especially for like dream sequence hallucination stuff for Sopranos for me was was pretty big but 
I always think of it in, as simple as like I like dramas that have comedy and comedy that that has drama and um, you know somebody who's in a comedy shouldn't know they're in a comedy. They should be treating this with the same stakes as. And I think you see Reese uh, Reese Darby who plays Steve Bonnet do it so well. Uh, he really is like fighting for his life out there, and it's funny for us to watch because of the context, but. Yeah, I guess I just, I really gravitate towards things that feel real, but a lot of real stuff is funny, so I feel like it kind of blends, but but it is always, it, it, it's a fine line, and it's always kind of moving and changing depending on what you're working on. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so what, when you were uh, approached to work on Our Flag Means Death, then what attracted to you about the show, and what was most kind of original or enticing for you to work on an opportunity like this? Uh, I read this script... And I immediately was like, this is so good. And I think it was uh, when he takes the plant from the, the like, fisherman. And there was dialogue there that has gotten cut. But I remember there was a line where the fisherman was like, it's me plant, sir. And I just was like, this is so funny. This is So it just felt so fresh and fun and also familiar like with you know, kind of has some, like, office Parks and Recs vibes to it. Um, so, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it's funny you mentioned office and Parks and Rec and all that, because, you know, as I was watching, inhaling the show, really, like, mm-hmm. I was thinking a lot about, you know, it feels, on the one hand, so unique and fresh and distinct from a lot of, you know, what you traditionally think of when you think of pirates on television, things yeah. like that. But on the other hand, I was thinking, well, actually, no, it, it feels quite similar in a lot of ways. It kind of comes from that era for me of, you know, the office, Parks and Rec, that type of tradition. And so I wonder, like, as you were working on the show, um, were there other television shows or films that you were looking to and thinking about when writing uh, this? And how did they influence your writing? Yeah, well, um, yeah, those shows like Office and Parks and Rec are so, like, uh, you know, in my veins at this point that those just kind of are kind of always top of mind in some way, or or at least at the surface. Um, uh, but yeah, as I said, I, I kind of would draw from from dramas and and rom coms a lot. I sort of became like the rom com person in the writers' room, <laughs> and like uh, people would like ask me about all these different rom com tropes and things. And so I I remember really thinking about like uh, Roman Holiday, which is my favorite movie. Um, and Notting Hill, in terms of like, you know, in those it's like a celebrity or a princess and a regular guy, and in this it's like Blackbeard and like a regular guy pirate. Um, but yeah, I just I find so much like joy from rom coms and meet cutes, and and that's why I was so like amazed, flattered that David asked me to write this episode because it's the meet cute, and um, <laughs> and I really really thrive on that. I basically love writing characters when they fall in love and when they fall out of love. And so it's fun to write them fall in love. Well, in a certain way, in the fourth episode, too, you get a little bit of both, right, between C and his wife as well, kind of arguably yes, falling. Yes, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Great, uh, great performance, Claudio Doherty. She's so good. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, was there another part of this question that I missed? Well, no, now I'm just thinking about, like, Audrey Hepburn as Blackbeard. So I don't know, like, now that you mentioned <laughs> Roman so Holiday, good. that's... Uh, <laughs> So, you know, I don't know if you've started on season three yet, but, you know, I'll just plant that seed for you right there. Um, Well, I guess on that irreverent note, um, could you maybe talk about, uh, you know, the show is based on a real-life historical figure, right, Steve Mm -hmm. Bennett. Um, Could you maybe talk about how... How um, 
How did you think about your relationship to history with a capital H when writing the show? Like, like mm. were, you, were you and the other writers really committed to, okay, we have to get the details right. We want it to seem very historically accurate, whatever that means. Or were you given kind of carte blanche to go wherever you wanted to in terms of the show? Yeah, David was, uh, I think from the top he had said, um, and I'm talking about David Jenkins, the creator and showrunner, um, he was... Uh, very clear, like, you know, we don't have to stick to history here. I think he even said, like, don't, you don't have to read anything. But I'm, like, <laughs> a student, so I was, like, I'm going to read, you know, whatever I can. And uh, we did have some films to watch. We watched Master and Commander and, um, and The Lighthouse, although that's more, like, creatively inspiring. But historically speaking, there was a writer in the room named Sidith uh, who was like an encyclopedia and sh- and they just knew like everything about uh about this time period and so sometimes they would just come up with a fact that we all were like how do you know that <laughs> and then it would turn into something so they had a really great uh uh role in the room aside from being a great writer uh that they they would bring some of these stories to light and and one of the things that I read was the general history of the pirates which is written I think in like 1780 or so, and it was written by this person who said they were a pirate captain. But it's written in a way that's very like, uh, you know, attention grab. It's really like we don't know if it's really true stories. It just sounds like fun stories. And in in that book is like the uh, some of the more popular ideas of who Blackbeard is and. Um, stories about like Mary Reed and Anne Bonnet, Anne Bonnie and um, Calico Jack and stuff. So, so there was just like it was kind of there at the surface, but we never felt like we had to stick to to anything. But I remember in my interview with David, he had said, um, you know, this story about Steed Bonnet and Blackbeard in real life. What happens is they like found each other, they started sailing with each other for a while they're over and then they died and <laughs> he was like the only way I can see somebody like Blackbeard hanging out with like this bad pirate that everybody is like making fun of is if they fell in love and I was like that's so good that's so that's great yeah <laughs> was there um was there anything left on the cutting room floor like anything like that you like wanted really hard to get into the first season or it had to be scrapped or it's something you didn't have the time for either mm-hmm. like a historical detail or character that you were interested in or a joke that was too crass for HBO Max <laughs> or you know was there something that didn't make the cut that you like still feel guilty about or sad about um you know a lot of stuff a lot of stuff made it in uh david is really he comes from playwriting, and he's uh, very detail-oriented, and I, pretty much a, a lot of the, at least in terms of like what was on the script, ended up, uh, for the most part, on, on, on screen. There were, I did just reread my last version of episode four, which after I write my final version, I do edits on my version, and then the showrunner takes like their, their edits on it. Um, my last version, I had a running joke where Blackbeard just kept saying, oh, I love that. And it's so small, but I really liked it, but it didn't make the cut. Justice. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, what, 
if you could maybe walk us through then the process of what was an average writing session like for the show? Like, how did it go from maybe a germ of an idea for, oh, this could become an episode down the line, to working in maybe a writer's room or a kind of mm-hmm. collaborative environment, to what we just saw right there? Like, could you walk us through, like, what it was like to write for the show? You know, David and Tycho ITD created it together and pitched it together and sold it. And David, in that process, what happens a lot of time when you're, when you're pitching is you you come up with a Bible for the whole season. And so that's like episode by episode, what would happen? You come up with a season arc, all the characters. So by the time, you know, the show was sold and there's, they're hiring writers and I'm brought into it, I have this whole Bible of what every episode will look like. And so we go into the room with that, but then it's still, like the first few days of a writer's room, it's still like, what we call like blue sky territory. So we just kind of blue sky ideas, which means you could kind of throw out any idea. And, um, you know, sometimes stuff comes from that. Sometimes stuff comes from like conversations. Sometimes stuff comes from a joke and it turns into a story or an episode idea, but it generally stayed pretty, uh, you know, it, it definitely had the same arc that David had initially lined up, but some, there was certainly like variation and changes in the exact episodes. Um, yeah, and then once when we're working on one episode, everybody's kind of outlining it together. For I, I, That's kind of the easiest way to explain it. We're kind of like, um, you know, this was a Zoom room, so if it were in person, we'd have like a whiteboard or like index cards and be like moving things around. On Zoom, we used a program that I can't remember, but it's like basically that online. And... Um, and then we outline it together, and then the writer who is going to write that episode does like a more detailed outline of that, and that gets approved by people above me and who I don't know really, and um, and then obviously approved by David, and then the writer goes off on script and then gets edits and kind of back and forth until until production. And then speaking of production, then were you involved at all in say the filming of the episode and how? If you were, like, did you notice anything about, you know, is there a lot of space for improvisation uh, when filming the show? Like, how much of what you wrote made it to the screen? Was there anything that was maybe ad-libbed on set? Mm -hmm, Anything like mm -hmm. that? Yeah. um, Well, a few things to this this question. One, in terms of the ad-lib, I remember David saying um, that, like, because a lot of times if you're writing a comedy... Um, you'll come up with what are called alts for jokes. So it's really just alternative jokes to something. And you're just kind of trying to come up with the best joke. Um, and I remember, and we didn't really do that for this show because David was like, Taika's the alt because <laughs> Taika <laughs> likes to, to have fun on set. Um, <laughs> and actually a really important moment for the season that uh, Taika improvised is the foot touch in eight or nine when uh, they're like locked up by the Spanish and the chain by Fleetwood Mac is playing and then Tycho reaches his foot over to Reese and um, Blackbeard is steed. I don't need to use the actor's names. Uh, <laughs> everybody knows who they are. And um, that, that was Tycho. Tycho just wow. did that. That wasn't in the script. So um, that's, that's the answer to improv. And, and also I think Joel Fry, who plays Frenchie, um, he wrote all those songs and like those weren't in the script. He just wow. kind of like came up with them. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but to, if I was on set, I was not on set. Uh, 
I went to visit set for a day, but um, the way things are in on sets now is uh, writers don't get to go on set when they have their episode, which historically they have been, and it's a cool, cool experience, mm-hmm. uh, supposedly, because <laughs> you're on set and you can like help with alts and help with whatever and... Um, but that's one of the things that like the writers guild in the strike right now is, is trying to get, um, uh, allow us, uh, to get paid for being able to actually do that and get the experience of being writing producers because it is, um, a really great skill to have and leads to other possible things. And I know for me personally, I'm also a director, so I feel like I would do well on set. Um, but I haven't unfortunately been able to do it. No. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. And that, that Taika Waititi, I think he's going to go somewhere. I think someday. so, too. Sounds quite talented. <laughs> um, so I was also thinking, rewatching uh, these episodes today, I was thinking in my head, you know, going through the Rolodex of, okay, these are other things I've seen involving pirates or people at sea, things like that. Mm-hmm. And by and large, like Master and Commander, for instance, mm-hmm. like heavy on action, heavy on drama, intrigue, all that stuff. But they aren't terribly funny most of the time. Like there's yeah. maybe like a joke interwoven in, you know, parts of the Caribbean or whatever. Yeah. So, you know, I'm just so curious to hear more about maybe how you understand maybe the relationship between say humor and comedy and piracy or going mm. to sea right because it seems like a lot of the kind of things you encounter in the 18th century on the ocean lend themselves to jokes weirdly enough it's a ludicrous environment yeah. it's very funny there's like gallows humor to be had you know could you maybe talk about like as a writer what became funny for you writing for the show like how could you kind of use a space that i think isn't often thought of in comedic terms and turn that into a kind of dark humor or like even satire yeah, that's a good question. I mean, the thing that comes to mind is that it, it really, the comedy comes from character. And uh, I, again, th- this might be, I, I didn't study playwriting and um, I also didn't study TV writing. So <laughs> what do I really know? But um, but playwriting, from what I understand um, and from what I have read on it is it's, uh, like a lot of prestige drama right now seems to stem from like playwriting theory in terms of like, character is the center that should drive everything. Um, And I think that either because David comes from playwriting or because we just have, he just was able to create a a writer's room with similar sensibilities, um, we were all kind of thinking like, this character is what's insane in this environment, you know? Mm -hmm. And this character who, who really just is looking for something, you know, and it really, we've all been looking for something and we've all been ridiculous as we've looked for something before. And, and I think that that's what, uh, what drives up the comedy so much. In addition to like, like you were saying, the context of like, it really is a mishmash of a lot of people on pirate ships and, and always has been. And like everybody falls in love and, and everybody hooks up and, Sounds great, um, but like I, I think Steed's character, and then also you know really fortifying the other characters that that we're on is what kind of allows it to be such a like fertile playground for for jokes and comedy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, one thing I've noticed since the show's uh, been out and so you know widely consumed and enjoyed and appreciated by fans is that it has resonated for so many different kind of communities, either mm-hmm. in North America or across the world. And so, I mean, I don't know if you have any sense as to why that is, or yeah. like if you have any kind of speculations about, you know, why this show has kind of found this almost underground audience um, at a time yeah. where I feel like we're kind of like oversaturated with, you know, new content on HBO Max. It seems like shows like this 
are hard to come by and yet like avidly consumed by fans. Like, do you have any idea like why that might be or why you think people are so compelled by the show? Yeah, I, I think, I think I've thought about this and what I also really like about it is it's, um, it's queer characters who are just kind of existing and it's not a show about like about specifically being queer, but like it, kind of just allows these different types of people to exist and and to and it allows us to see how they uh have been existing for so long but maybe just without the the you know the language we know of now or um or things like that so i i think i think to me that that's what's nice is it's um you know there's certainly and always will be a place for for art that is like very identity based, um, and and that's paved the way in so many ways, you know, for um, like for Latinx shows and and everything, and for queer shows. Um, but I think what's also exciting is is being able to be in this space now, thanks to those types of shows and art, um, where you could just kind of be these characters existing. Um, and I I think that's it, but I that's just one one sense I have about it. Yeah. Yeah. No, and like. I hope this was intentional, but I was noticing in the second episode we watched for today, there's such a kind of delightful gag where they're in the auxiliary uh, wardrobe, right? Mm-hmm. And, like, they're literally, like, trapped in the closet at yeah. this moment, right? And yeah, I thought yeah, that was yeah. such a kind of, like, tongue-in-cheek <laughs> kind of joke right there. But I wonder, you know, as a writer then, um, you know, if you don't have the vocabulary or the language to be like, I am homosexual or I am gay or I am queer or whatever, you know, like, those words barely existed in the 18th century, as it were, um, can you use double entendres or can you turn that into a, another source of kind of wordplay or like suggestive dialogue where in other words, like what you're doing here is you're conveying a character's sexual orientation or identity or character, um, not through verbal communication or dialogue, but through other ways of being, of getting it, of getting it apart or sorry, getting it across to the audience that like, Hey, Steve Bonnet is very unhappily married to a woman. Maybe he's gay. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Like, how do you kind of convey that then as a writer, absent this kind of vocabulary for homosexuality or queerness? Yeah, I guess it's, I guess it's like, it is also kind of a general writing, you know, tentpole that I try to do is never hit anything on the nose. And so, so in some ways it's, it's an extension of, of that. Um, but I, I, I guess... You know, I like leaving space for, like, exactly what's going on. Like, I like thinking about Steed as um, as potentially bisexual or, or as, you know, potentially gay. But, like, I also kind of like that I don't really have to – I have to – all I think about is, like, well, I want him and Blackbeard to get together, you know? And so I don't know if that fully answers the question, but I, I guess it's, like, um, leaving – leaving space so that it can kind of allow the characters to just be focusing on the love and not, like, the identity. Uh, so that, I don't know, there's something to me that can be a little more freeing about that. No, absolutely. And I was also thinking about when you were mentioning identity, I was thinking about um, especially the supporting cast, or the so-called supporting cast of the yeah. show, right? Because it is an, an ensemble piece in a lot of ways, right? I'm thinking about actors like Vigo Ortiz, for instance, right? Yeah. Um, and so as 
when you were working in, say, the writer's room, how intentional or deliberate were you in saying, okay, we want to aim for this type of ensemble. We want to aim for this type of cast. Because, again, like, in my experience, most pirate television shows and movies are pretty white, right? Like, usually, Mm -hmm. like, white guys from Europe going across and trying to, Mm -hmm. you know, set sail on the seven seas. So, like, how... How did you kind of incorporate then a question of, say, especially racial and ethnic identity into writing, you know, this grand ensemble aboard the ship? Well, and again, credit to David is he was really, really great at making a diverse room. And so there were um, there there were a lot of non-binary folks. There were a lot of us somewhere on the queer spectrum. And then there were uh, a lot of like a lot of people of color and and i think there was a sense too about like pirate ships historically like did would be kind of like a lot of different types of of people and um i remember cited the writer who who was the encyclopedia saying that there are some historians who who think Blackbeard might have been black or indigenous because he was like always freeing slaves um so I think it's kind of like there are these stories that exist already but aren't as well known, aren't as well portrayed, and so they're just they just happen to be portrayed here, but they weren't like, you know, completely unheard of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know, when you were brought on to work with the show, um, were you aware that it would be eventually airing on HBO, or I guess now it's just Max, but, you know, right. HBO Max, like, <laughs> did the kind of venue for this type of show influence at all what you could get away with in the show? Like, were you saying, like, oh, if we aren't writing for Peacock or ABC or CBS or whatever, can we push the envelope a little bit more maybe with HBO Max in terms of these exact issues? Like, do you feel like you were, how, how much did HBO's HBO-ness factor into your writing for the show? Yeah, I did not think about that at all. But uh, <laughs> not, you know, I it, I guess in that I knew it was going to be. I was thinking about it as an HBO show, so I know it would have been different if it was um, a show on ABC. Like, mm-hmm. but I was, I kind of just, I I kind of in my mind have divided it as like a streaming vibe and a network vibe, um, so. So I don't think that really, like, played too much for me personally. But, um, you know, once this the show is, like, sold and the studio bought it, you know, they're in for the vibe. And so I kind of just have to trust that my boss hired me for a good reason and, <laughs> and that I'm, you know, my job is to make his job easier. So I, uh, I... I think I'm pitching in a, in a way that he likes and in a way that, you know, ultimately, hopefully, the studio will like. Yeah. Well, could you go back to that divide between, like, the, I think you referred to it as, like, a network vibe and a streaming vibe? Like, what does that mean to you? And, like, how does that maybe, like, materialize in your writing? How does it, have you written for both? And, like, what are the differences between them? Um, I, I have only written for streaming, actually, but, uh, it, it's getting, it's not exactly like this. It was like this, I think, when I started uh, getting into narrative where, like, streaming was a little edgier or, like, funkier and network was more like, you know, uh, what we kind of historically think of as sitcom-y or, or like, procedurally drama-y things. Um, but obviously, net, uh, streaming has expanded exponentially and again to bring the the writers strike into this is it's expanded so much 
while writers' pay is going down, and it's not just writers, it's everybody in the industry, and I'm so grateful to be in a union that's so organized that, that, can, that can, you know, make movement on this. But, um, yeah, they, they, it's kind of a very clear story of money being made at the top and uh, more and more money and wanting to spend less and less money a very gilded age, uh, very gilded age. (laughs) (laughs) Coming soon to HBO Max. Yeah, yeah. Uh, (laughs) Well, I guess also on that note then, um, again, like to use your terminology, you know, you you just referred to streaming um, vibes as funkier in Mm. a certain way, right? And so I wonder if you could maybe talk, I know we only watched two out of, I believe, the ten episodes of the first season Mm -hmm. uh, today, but could you maybe talk about elsewhere, maybe in other episodes we didn't screen for today, what does that funkiness mean for you? Or, like, Mm. how involved were you with other episodes in the show, and how did it, being originally written and conceived for a streaming platform then, uh, inspire you to take maybe creative risks uh, elsewhere in the show? Well, yeah, so so in a writer's room, it's actually quite... Uh, inaccurate to say, like, I wrote episode four, because truly, like, we all outline together, and a lot of it, you know, comes from so many different places, and I just happen to be the name on it that's, like, meshing it all together, and so I I feel like that's, um, I I like to say that to, like, newer writers or, or to people who are entering writers' rooms, because it can be, uh, easy to kind of, you want to leave ego at the door in a, in a writer's room, you know, and like it really is where wherever the joke comes from, the joke comes from. Uh, you never count how many jokes you get in a script; it'll it'll it could ruin your life. <laughs> um, but uh, so so in that sense, I, I was because we are all outlining like pretty much every episode together. I was I was involved in all in all the episodes, and like all ugh, the funkier stuff. I mean. I really liked uh, how important music was to David, and he, like, wrote in the songs into the scripts. Like, I think The Chain was written into the script. I think Cat Stevens was written into the script. And uh, I, I, you know, not that music is inherently funky, but (laughs) um, I, I liked that that kind of made the tone, helped make the tone, like still have this softness, this, like, um, this sweetness that, that I think Taika also, you know, does, does really well, while it's still being, like, a bunch of weird people trapped in a room together, essentially. A family that's stuck together um, is, is basically what this show is. Yeah. No, and that, that's such a beautiful way of putting it, right? Because I was thinking, like, th- there is a surprising sweetness to the show, even yeah. though, like, in the first episode, a man is literally, like, impaled with a <laughs> right, sword, right? right through his head. Right. So that brings me to my next question, which is, uh, begins with a quote. Um, so this was for a piece called Collider Online, and Danny Hurd writes, and I quote, uh, David Jenkins' pirate rom-com series, Our Flag Means Death, isn't just a great example of queer representation, but a great example of queer joy. Mm. And so it's funny, because I think you just mentioned, you know, sweetness and the kind of um, uh, fondness, I think, that, the, you know, everybody, or everybody aboard the ship has for one another. And in the quotation I just read, you know, they refer to queer joy. And so mm. I wonder if you could maybe talk about to me, what seemed to be kind of these extreme ends of, say, queer joy or tenderness or sweetness on one hand, mm-hmm. and then, 
you know, F-bombs galore, people dying or getting mutilated or losing limbs, you know, mm-hmm. like everything that comes with going to sea in the 18th century. And how do you see these two kind of extremes working together in the show? Because yeah. I think, like, you can actually play them off of one another in a really interesting way. And I think that, like... For me, part of what's so exciting about the show is that, you know, you never know if something is going to lead to, like, a punchline or someone getting, like, dismembered. And sometimes it'll be both, right? So, like, maybe as a writer, how does, you know, what this one critic call queer joy, how does that maybe intersect with you with, like, the gruesome, grisly, violent nature of being a pirate? Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, (laughs) it's kind of like the same way life is just, like, weird and funny and sweet sometimes, and then you turn around and it could be, like, really a punch in the gut and it just happens to be that these characters uh their version of being punched in the gut is like literally you know getting stabbed in the gut you know and and so like i think it's like the context of 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 the environment for these characters is that kind of swashbuckling stuff that you're talking about but then they are also queer characters who are who are finding joy and that's again i feel like that's like a life thing is like I, you know, we find joy even when things are really bad or when things are really weird or, or, or when things are really good. And, but it's not obviously all the same time. And as Oprah Winfrey says, <laughs> joy is not the same thing as happiness. So joy can come in, you know, it doesn't have to be consistent. And, and I think that that's what, uh, uh, what, I, what I see as like what these characters are experiencing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Well, and I guess to shift gears ever so slightly, you know, I was also thinking, I mentioned the ensemble cast a little bit ago, but of course the first season especially is known for its guest stars. In virtually every episode, mm. there's a cameo or a guest star yeah. and things like that. And so did you know any of that going into when you started working on the show? Like, oh, we'll have um, Fred Armisen, for instance, or Will Arnett. Like, we'll know, we know like this person will be in this episode. We don't know what role they'll be playing. Or like, could you just say, hey, wouldn't it be great if we could get Will Arnett for this show? Like, how did that go about? It's such a fun uh, it's such fun information in any writer's room when you find out who your guest star is for certain things. And so, uh, you know, sometimes we would just, like, talk about who we would like in this type of role. And I think Will Arnett might have been circling around for Calico Jack for a little bit between us um, in the room. But I, I can't quite remember. But once we once we found out, it was just so, I mean, so exciting to have... And the one day I was on set visiting, he he was on set, and he is so fun to watch. And he does improvise a lot. And actually, yeah, a lot of his lines uh, are improvised. Uh, And he's talking about people, like, burning in the ship. And uh, he's so good. But, um, yeah, and the weird thing about writing a season one of a show is you are writing before you know who's cast on the main, the main, uh, the main roles. And so, um, it's, it's just interesting to, to be doing that and then be like, Oh, we did get Taika. So I guess we're writing Blackbeard as Taika. And Oh my gosh, a thing I loved that David said was (laughs) that this is a Blackbeard on this show is so Sophia Coppola's Blackbeard. It's not like Blackbeard as we know him, and I love that. Um, so I believe right now we will now turn it over to the audience. So I, we can't really see, but we're going to be uh, assisted. So if you have a question uh, for Eliza, please raise your hand, and uh, I believe uh, Tyler will uh, pass out a microphone. Yeah. Um, so if you have- Hi. 
On IMDb, you're listed as both a, a writer for an episode, and clearly part of the writer's room, but also as an executive story editor. Can you talk about the difference between those roles? Yeah, I can. It's kind of, um, it's kind, so when you are a writer, you have to have a certain title in the room, and it's kind of just the, the way the WGA works. It, it really just means, like, what... Uh, <laughs> It means what your experience is, but it also means what your minimum payment has to be. And so usually you start as a staff writer. Um, and when you're a staff writer, again, as it is now, and what the WGA is fighting against is, is when you're a staff writer, you don't get paid for an episode, which, yeah, normally, you know, you get paid for your work. Um, <laughs> And then from above there, you start kind of moving up. And then when you have representatives, agents, or managers, they help kind of negotiate what your position will be in the next room. And so um, it's with, uh, with mini rooms, which, again, another thing WGA is fighting against, which mini rooms are essentially rooms that are smaller in size and or in number, but uh, studios want the same amount of work done from them. Uh, it becomes harder to kind of move up in ranks because you kind of stay at, it's easy to get stuck in like similar places because you're in smaller rooms that go for a shorter amount of time. Um, so generally the levels up are something like staff writer, story editor, executive story editor. Um, it, I'm not sure exactly what, but it goes up to like co-producer, co-executive producer, and there, there might be things in between that I'm not really sure of, but on IMDb, I think it might just say writer because I literally wrote an episode, and then my but my role is technically for season one was was uh, executive story editor. Hi. Um, so you talked about the kind of incidental queerness um, of the characters, but something that I really loved about the show is that it's still a romance. Like it's not just smush the queer characters together mm -hmm. because they're both queer. Like there are visibly falling in love and they have this like romantic and sexual tension um could you talk about writing that element of it uh like sexual tension for queerness in queer sure well between <laughs> the between the two of them between like obviously um Reese Darby and Tiger Wedgity have like awesome chemistry between them anyway but um it's it's still a love story right yeah. they are still well it is kind of funny I sometimes I like miss information and I or I forget something and so I went into the writer's room thinking we were just mapping a friendship on a romance. Uh, so I remember thinking, like, okay, this is a friendship <laughs> until a certain point. And there, there were a couple of us where we were like, oh, we're going we're gonna to make them kiss. And <laughs> this is, like, this is not just a friendship. And so I think it's kind of funny how, for me, it was kind of similar to how I think it might be for a viewer watching it be like, oh, <laughs> oh, this is happening. Um, but I think that's what, yeah, I mean, like I said, I'm such a rom-com head, and so I just found so much fun in finding these two characters who are feeling out of place, feeling at the end of something, but they don't know what's next, and then having some kind of magnet that brings them together. And even, like, rewatching one and seeing the way, like, Taika's looking at Reese and the way he, like, touches his hand when he comes out of the fever... Um, you know, I like that a lot of those things were always there, and uh, I like bringing them like more to the forefront as as we we go through the season. 
Hi. First off, congratulations on writing something that's absolutely brilliant. That's so nice. Um, I'm wondering, there are so many other uh, side plots of romance between certain sets of characters. I'm wondering if that was something that was pre-planned and predetermined, or something that just naturally occurred from from the way the script was developing. Um, I remember Jim and Alu being a thing from the beginning, uh, but I don't think we knew how we were going to end them for the season. Um, and then Black Pete and Lucius, I think they were also a thing from early on at least, um, but I, I think again we weren't sure how to end them for the season. and. You know, when you have three new relationships on a show, it's, like, it's actually kind of hard <laughs> to, like, make sure they're all, like, different in their own way and, you know, are in different different stages of, of whatever their relationship is. Um, so I think the, the answer is, like, a lot of it was there, but we just weren't sure, like, exactly how it would turn out until we were going through it. Every character goes through usually some pretty significant trauma and that as they kind of come together as a community, uh, like how, how conscious are you of the fact that they're working through those things and, and how they trigger certain things or heal certain things? For each individual character, like what their traumas are? Yeah. Well, I'm always thinking about my trauma and everything I do. <laughs> so uh, I guess I'm, I guess that is something that come that, yes, that is something that I think about a lot in that, I think of myself, when I think of myself as a writer, I think of myself as an armchair psychologist for a bunch of people that I don't know who are my characters. <laughs> and I'm trying to be, I, I'm genuinely, like, I'm, I'm truly thinking about just psychology at some level when I'm thinking about what to do with them or how they would react, how, would they, how they would respond to things. And I, I wish I could pull an example off the top of my, top of mind, but... You know, like when Jim goes back to their home, um, that was certainly, you know, I remember at the time being like, how are we going to handle them like going back to this place where, you know, basically the the opening from, what is that Tarantino movie, Hateful Eight? No. What's the, what's the open where like everybody dies? Uh, what's that Tarantino movie where everyone dies? Is it... Inglorious Bastards? Inglorious Bastards. Thank yeah. you, thank you. Like, <clears throat> like Jim basically had that happen. Um, and so I think that is, that is always something I'm thinking about. Like, how do we keep these characters, like, real, breathing human beings uh, who've been through but also, uh, you know, have them exist in a comedy? So you, a couple of minutes ago, were talking about the scene where uh, Blackbeard sees himself in the book and is kind of shocked and somewhat horrified by kind of the public perception of him. Uh, was that something that you came up with, or is that something that the writers room together came up with, or is that just Taika just being Taika? Um, I think that came together in the room. I do remember... I remember I wrote a joke into the script which was that Steed had an entire shelf of Blackbeard books, labeled Blackbeard books. Um, <laughs> but that did not make it. Um, but I, I'm pretty sure that that was everybody, and it could have even just come straight from David in terms of, like... Because that, that's what we wanted in terms of, like... Steed does not like 
Steve did not like living up to who people expected him to be. And Blackbeard doesn't like that right now either. And so, so I think that was kind of just baked into like who, who the characters were. Hi. Hey. Um, so you talked about improv a little bit, but I was wondering just how you kind of write a script um, for that inspires improv, like especially in comedy and maybe like actors that wouldn't necessarily do improv otherwise? Um, it's, I don't think about that much, think about that that much on the writer's end because I'm still just trying to write the best script possible if they didn't improvise from it. I, that kind of question works more for like, like a director. A director will be able to, and again, it's helpful when the writer's on set with that, but like, um, a director can look, will look at the script and be like, uh, maybe we have space here for like, for like having fun. And and the showrunner will, will probably do that too. Um, and so in terms of like actors who might not be that great at improv, uh, you kind of just on set learn who likes it and who doesn't and who you can trust to do it. <laughs> and, um, and it's a, it's a skill. Not, ev- not everyone can do it. And that's like totally okay. Which again is, I think that's why on the writer's end of it, you know, you're just trying to write it as best as you can, even uh, assuming nobody can improvise. Oh, me pressure. <laughs> Uh, hi. Hey. Uh, as you said, this is a show that inspires a lot of excitement, a lot of loyalty. What is the best way that we can support you as a writer? Set aside all our freaking out about trailer and season two and all that. Just how can we support you? Because we know this is going to be a tough time you're heading into the next couple of months. Oh, that's so sweet. Um, uh, there, there is um, an entertainment industry fund for like the lower level uh writers and folks in the industry in the industry who are uh who are affected like financially if you have means for that but but truly i think that the the you know if you want to come down to like a picket line in la um everyone is welcome and you know you're gonna come and uh Jay Leno will bring donuts and Weezer will play apparently at Paramount. And, um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, the piggy lines are a lot of fun. Um, and everybody, everybody's welcome to come to that. Um, or just like retweeting stuff about the strike. Um, and, or, you know, asking questions, I, I, I pretty much any writer is pretty happy to talk about it. And now SAG too, us actors, uh, are, are authorizing a strike right now. They might strike as well. Um, but you know, it's, it's a really nice question. Uh, you know, have fun watching the show. That means a lot to us too. (laughs) Well, thank you all so much. And so lovely to speak with a writer and not chat GPT. So thank you so much for all of your labor. (laughs) Thank you all for coming out. Thank you guys. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, Visit us online at uctv.tv.